Welcome, everyone, to the Battle of Gettysburg podcast. I am your co-host, Eric Lindblade, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, Jim Hessler. Jim, what do we have on tap for today? Hey, Eric, welcome back, and uh, welcome back to all the listeners. We are back with part two of Mead at Gettysburg with our friend, esteemed historian and author, Kent Masterson Brown. So we left off on part one, if I recall, kind of at the end of July 1st. And I think we're going to pick up the story on July 2nd. Kent will walk us through the closing of the Battle of Gettysburg, a little bit on the uh, post-battle campaign itself. And dare I say, we may see an extended Dan Sickles report for not too long. Yeah, as, as many people that get really triggered by Dan Sickles, I'm sorry, you cannot talk about George Meade on July 2nd, 1863. And not mention Dan Sickles. Well, that's the million-dollar question. Can you or can't you, and should you or shouldn't you? I'd love to see, and I'm putting a call out there, folks, I'd love to see a George Meade historian come bursting onto the scene here that doesn't have to compare Meade to Sickles, or Lincoln was unfair to Meade, or Halleck was unfair to Meade, or Sickles was unfair to Meade. Damn it. Can we just get Meade on his own merits? Well, we can't get Longstreet on his own merits. <laughs> I mean, I, you replace Meade, you've got Longstreet people there. Yeah, that's um, true. So, well, in between the two episodes came out, I happened to be on the battlefield mm -hmm. and happened to be at the hallowed ground where Dan Sickles was severely wounded in defense of the United States yes. on July 2nd, 1863. And I saw an American flag there. And okay, the two folks on the tour said, wait a minute, there's writing on the back of it. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden you look at it and there's literally Dan Sickles' face with an X through it and <laughs> says, you know, Dan Sickles, you're a horrible, despicable human being. They didn't spell despicable right. Oh, no. Because, so, you know, crazy letters, you have to have misspellings. That yeah. makes them extra good. Extra crazy. So, and I'm thinking, all right, the level of just animosity for someone's actions 159 years ago. That you take the time to deface an American flag, not yeah, to get all patriotic yeah. here, and then to go out to the site and leave it there. Folks, Dan Sickles is the biggest heel in the territory. He embraces your hate. He frankly doesn't care. They don't boo nobodies, as Reggie Jackson once said. So there we go. So, I mean, can a Mead historian remove him from the Mead Sickles controversy? I don't know, because yeah, it's also, as we're going to talk about a little bit later, how entwined is that with the post-battle right. issues we're talking about in the immediate months after? There's, I don't know. I, I'm not sure if you could, it's like a surgeon with the right scalpel. Maybe <laughs> they can cut that out good enough. I don't know. I don't know if you're going to get all the, the meat off the bone. And meat off the bone? Woo! That was a little, uh, did you do that on purpose? I did, actually, right. yeah. So the, um, you know, a couple thoughts too. Yeah, your flag episode ca caused quite a stir when we shared that on our, on, on our Facebook did it, page. Uh, dare I say it went viral? I think it did. I think it broke the internet that day. I think it did. Well, at least Civil War standards. But, but if you're writing a first person letter to a guy that has been dead, and it doesn't matter if it's Dan Sickles, George Custer, George Meade, whoever it is. If you're writing a first person note to somebody that's been dead for a hundred or more years, folks, seek help. Yeah. Turn off the podcast, go out, walk the dog, kiss your spouse, you know, spend a little bit of time with your kids, seek professional help. Call our hotline 1-800-DAN-SICKLES. Our, our trained staff will help get you professional counseling. Superfan Jody has a background in that. Maybe she can help counsel you over your, your hate and your anger. But God, man, just get over it. I mean, 
dare I say, people are getting temporarily insane over Dan Sickles. That's, that, that could be the new catch line for our show, perhaps. There we go. Right? Well, on that note, let's get back to George B. But yes. before we do, we are coming to you from our home studio here in Getty's Gear. Uh, Carrie and the crew have been gracious enough to once again let us record here, so we always want to give them a shout-out here on the show as we actually are looking at right now Strong Vincent and Joshua Chamberlain looking down at us right now. I'm just thinking that is obviously Little Round Top is going to close for 18 months yes. within 24 hours. Eric? Where will you go for your romantic sunsets during the next 18 months or so? Do you have any place picked out? Uh, I, I think I'm going to go with Willoughby's Run. You think? Because so? nothing says romance yeah. like places where bodies are dropping like cordwood. I, well, I was thinking, why don't we go to the Sickles Wounding Monument? You know you what? Know, that, or, is, that is very romantic. It, it will be. And because you know what? Sickles, at his core, was a lover. He was. Yeah. And you know what he loved? Gettysburg. Yes. And you know what he loved about Gettysburg? That it was good ground. Mm -hmm. Very and we are good coming ground. to you from good ground here. Not only good Gettys ground, here. we're coming to you from very good ground. So, in case the listeners are wondering, as of recording right now, it is July 24th at 1130 in the morning. Currently, we have 53% humidity here, and the all-important all dew point is at 67 degrees. Excellent. And, and this is obviously a shout-out to our highly acclaimed weather episode eric do we by chance know what the current wet bulb temperature is i do not have my wet bulb calculations i might have to get that from the fine folks with their weather journals in harrisburg okay um so even when i'm not on the episode folks i still listen yeah so. yeah but i know scientifically it feels yucky out it does i think that is the scientific term yeah. and i think we were actually we had an actual scientist verified that that is a scientific term to use. Mm -hmm. And if you so, haven't listened to our weather episode yet, why the heck not? And I'll just say this. Uh, we're right now going through the hottest streak we have had this year here in Pennsylvania, at least where we live. And I'm hearing more and more on Facebook. But imagine what it was like during the battle. Everyone's now talking about the weather on the battle all of a sudden. It's I wonder why. Are you saying we're kind of setting a trend for... That stuff. Dare I say we did for the weather what we did for John Batchelder? Yeah, yeah. And so, what we've done for Dan Sickles, of course, Bobo. Bobo and Dandy. You know, Dandy mm. does not get enough love. No, he doesn't. And is this the part in the show where somebody at home is saying, damn it, stop it. Get yeah. to the serious history. Should we get, yeah, to, yeah, should we so, get to the, the great Kent Masterson Brown, our good friend from Kentucky? Yes, should we get to the interview? Yes. Let, let's stop messing around. Let's get to it. A lot of great stuff to cover here on July 2nd with Kent Masterson Brown, George Meade, Battle of Gettysburg, Dan Sickles. I think we should get to it. Only if we promise we can clown around again at the end of the interview. Because it is our show. It It is our show. Yeah. I think that gets forgotten sometimes. It does get forgotten. So. Free entertainment. But yeah, yes, I, let, let's get to the interview. And we should point out, as you did in part one, uh, the interview is conducted via Zoom. So there might be a little bit of difference in sound quality. Uh, we're also joined during the interview by our beloved contributor, Superfan Jody, who, quite frankly, is developing quite a following of her own these days. Yes, so. very much so. And I think we actually will be working with her again very soon on uh, hopefully some projects uh, with the new World War II Museum here in Gettysburg. Uh, so we've got some programs lined up relating to that topic. So yeah. if you're interested in, say, the reunions here in 1913, 1938, uh, the World War I usage of the battlefield, and also the World War II usage of the battlefield, it's more than just Eisenhower. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, we've got a lot of interesting things coming up on that front, so, so yeah. certainly stay tuned. 
But enough of that. Yes. I think people say, oh, they're just self-promoting. That they're going on and on and on and on. And, and on. their obnoxious voices. Yes, yes. yes, so, yes. so let's go to it. Uh, let's now go to the interview with our good friend and friend of the show, Kent Masterson-Brown. George Mead at Gettysburg, part two. Okay, and we are back with part two of Mead at Gettysburg with the esteemed author, historian, Kent Masterson-Brown. On part one, we basically took Mead in the Army of the Potomac through July 1st. And I think with part two, we're going to pick up on July 2nd and talk about the fighting and, oh, a few controversies that might ensue on the uh, second day at Gettysburg. Kent, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be here. Okay. Well, so we you touched on in part one about concerns about the uh, Union flank, the left flank specifically being vulnerable. Uh, do we maybe want to pick up the story on the uh, morning of July 2nd, 1863. What is Meade's thought process at this point as he brings the army together? And Well, for a, an operational commander uh, like George Meade, his, his duty and his role continues as uh, the one who is searching for information about the whereabouts of his enemy. Even the enemy he knows is on the field, uh, AP Hill's Corps, Richard Ewell's Corps doesn't know much about where Longstreet is, but he knows those other two corps are on the field. But now it now we're looking at a at a tactical uh, matter. He has he sets up signal stations all along the um, cemetery ridge at the headquarters of uh, Henry Slocum uh, on the of the Twelfth Corps on Little Round Top. Uh, there's a signal station not far from Meade's headquarters. Uh, these are, you know, they, they denude trees of branches and set up signal stations in trees. They set them on top of buildings, uh, whatever. And of course, the one on Little Round Top is so is so high that um, uh, it commands a view of the entire battlefield. That's going to be uh, uh, important two days. But um, what Meade is trying to discern now is what is this, what is the tactical thing that this enemy is going to embark upon? And I mention this because I, I, I was fascinated uh, just reading signal uh, station notes in the official records. There's a constant message that seems to be coming through principally from Little Roundtop. Uh, some from Cemetery Hill, where there's another signal station, uh, that there are large numbers of troops moving from the Confederate right to the left, meaning moving to Meade's right. Uh, some of these sightings are of significance, large numbers of troops followed by ambulances uh, moving along the Her Ridge Road, for instance, uh, uh, off the west of Gettysburg. And um, one has to, uh, uh, you can imagine George Meade trying to assess this. Is, is Lee moving everything to my right wing in order to attack it? Or is this a ruse? I dare say it's a ruse. Large numbers of these sightings. Or Lee simply trying to get me to concentrate on his right when Lee wants to attack his left. But nevertheless, as the operational commander, Meade's got to make a decision about that. 
and he can't afford to miss this one. (laughs) Um, And um, so he does have grave concerns about his right flank. Happily for him, in the morning of July 2nd, the Fifth Corps arrives, and uh, he gets to place the Fifth Corps along the Baltimore Pike uh, behind uh, Slocum's 12th Corps. He knows the 6th Corps is still en route, but it's not going to be there until like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And that's when Sedgwick told Meade's messenger he'd be there. And by God, he does get there. you got to hand it to Sedgwick. He's a guy who works on the clock, and he, and he gets there in time. But So Meade is gratified with the arrival of the 5th Corps. Uh, he's got plenty of people over there on the right flank, he probably thinks. The problem now is his left. And um, what does he have? Well, from Cemetery Hill, where the remnants of the 1st and 11th Corps are, moving to the left, uh, down uh, Cemetery Ridge, comes the 2nd Corps, which finally is put in place after bivouacking behind the Little Round Top the night before. They're brought into line along Cemetery Ridge. Uh, Dan Sickles, <laughs> whose corps is basically has camped overnight out in the fields in front of Cemetery Ridge and along Cemetery Ridge, is directed to form to the left of Hancock, the second corps. Addressing the elephant in the room, so to speak, or in this particular room right now, would be a corps commander that perhaps Meade was not as gratified with Dan Sickles. And, and, and I think, so we have some, I think we use a lot of the same source material I did in my Sickles work and you did in, in the Meade book, but sometimes we come to different interpretations, which I think is part of the, the challenge with the so-called Meade-Sickles controversy. Um, you want to pick it up, go back to the morning of July 2nd. It's about 8 a.m., 9 a.m. in the morning. General Meade comes out of headquarters. He takes his son, Captain George Meade. This is a scene I've recreated on the battlefield hundreds of times. But you want to tell the story as General Meade tells Captain Meade to go seek out General Sickles? Yeah, well, he, he, he does just that. He meets him out in front of the Leicester house tells him to ride down there and um, basically see what's going on. I mean, he, Meade has, Meade has given now the instructions and Meade has even had uh, Captain Payne draw a map for each Corps commander of where they're supposed to be. Uh, Sickles has even gotten um, a message from uh, General Geary on Little Roundtop, inviting him to send a staff officer to him so he could show him where he should be placed mm-hmm. on the northern face of Little Roundtop. And so Meade, in my estimation at this moment, has given Sickles plenty of instruction. Yeah. Including a map. Uh, so he, and you're right, I mean, I, I, there's, a, there's a trust problem that exists between the two. Yeah, and you're right. And that was that was one of the things I've always said. If you really want to understand this, you have to go backwards to at least 1862, I think, and understand the trust and the communication problems that no doubt exist between Meade and Sickles. You can't just parachute onto Cemetery Ridge on the morning of July 2nd and say, geez, how did how yeah. did this communication breakdown happen? Um, you know, you mentioned the pain map. I would argue that copies of the pain map that I've seen today 
Uh, and there's some debate over whether the ones that exist today are, are of the correct provenance or not. Uh, some of the, the copies of the pain map that exist tend to have sickles stretching out towards the Emmitsburg Road. So I think that is hard to use. But what I always talk about first is Meade's verbal orders. And I always go back to Meade's testimony before the Joint Committee on the Conduct of the War, where he described the orders, because they're verbal, and unfortunately, we don't have any written ones to refer to. But where Meade talks about the orders, he, he basically says, um, you know, I intimated that Sickles was to occupy the position that I understood General Hancock had put General Geary on the night previous. Sickles replied that Geary had no position. He then said to me that there was in the neighborhood of where his corps was some very good ground for artillery. And this comes in later when they when they meet at headquarters. But, you know, as Meade describes his orders, he's basically saying extend the left of the second corps, replace Geary, occupy that range of hills. And according to Meade's description of the orders, Meade adds, if practicable, to occupy it. And there's been some heat on social media over this. Because you you referenced me on page two hundred nineteen. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm I, sorry I, I said in his fine book. Okay. Exactly. Uh, and I, <laughs> I, I should add, I misspoke. It's page two hundred and eighteen. <laughs> I'm glad I don't have Alan Delzo here today. I mean, imagine, uh, you I know, you know, honestly, I should clarify for listeners. I mean, Kent Masterson Brown and I know each other. I mean, we're not, we're not close friends i don't like come down to kentucky and you know ride the horses with you but we've we've been together in the past and had some very uh, pleasant interactions yeah. so likewise when i first read that past passage you know james hessler in his very fine book sickles at gettysburg and I, I just kind of said oh well that was nice and and obviously then from there you were a little hard on sickles and you say look in your opinion it defies right. credibility right. that sickles could have been confused over the order um I wrote my particular passage about 11 years ago, and the point that I've always made isn't so much a case of whether or not the Meade-Sickles orders are clear. The point that I've always made is Sickles has given enough warning signs that they're not clear to him or that he doesn't like them. You can accuse him of outright disobedience. He's either unclear or he's being disobedient. But where I said in the past, I think Meade does should get dinged a little bit is if you have a difficult subordinate who's repeatedly telling you, hey, I don't like what I'm supposed to do here. It would have served me in hindsight to come down there and inspect the position earlier. And, and I stand by that line. And I've had a lot of people on the battlefield agree with me on that line. But um, but in your opinion, and you know, this is your show today as you're the guest. Um, I think in your opinion, you feel like Sickles is really more guilty of just outright disobedience. And, yeah, you know, I do. I, I, do. Mean, I, 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 I honestly do. I think he was given <clears throat> plenty of um, uh, instruction orally. Um, you're to form to the left of Hancock um, and um, occupy the northern face of Little Round Top. He was given a map uh, I don't know anything about really the provenance of the maps I've seen that are attributed to Payne. Uh, but I do know Payne, draft, he was a topographical engineer, mm -hmm. drafted those maps uh, in accordance with what Meade's wishes were or orders were. And um, I have to assume, um, without respect to what we're seeing popping up here and there, that um, those orders were, those maps were explicit. 
but in any event, even later in the morning, Sickles appears at the Leicester house. Mm-hmm. And Meade points to Little Roundtop and tells him, I want you there. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know how m- much more one an, an operational commander, and imagine all the stuff that this guy's dealing with, mm-hmm. right. not just Sickles. In, in the Army, a court-martial would take a very dim view, I think, of Sickles' position in this. Yeah, and obviously most subsequent historians take a dim view in that as well. So, you know, there's no doubt there. There's, you know, and and, and even, even if he had questions, um, I, I understand anyone who has questions, you know, about things this, this critical... But those should have been clearly voiced to the commander himself. But questions are one thing. You can't expect the operational commander to have to come out there and make sure each corps commander is doing precisely what he told him to do. Yeah, I know. There's got to be this sense of confidence. The minute you tell Henry Slocum, I want you here, Henry Slocum is there. Right. Um, and if there's any sort of problem, that guy's got to go. That, that commander's got to go. Yeah. And, and, and you know, and, you, and you, I wouldn't disagree with any of that. Um, although I would add whether or not the commanding general has time to leave headquarters and do that, that's what he has a staff for. Um, right. you know, that's, right. that's, that's an option. And again, I think in Sickles's case, he's, I'm not absolving him of any blame for what happens. In fact, I open that passage with while Sickles bears the ultimate responsibility. And I've still had some people follow up with me and say, how can you say he has no responsibility? I'm like, go back and read the sentence, please. But again, I think, you know, Meade's Meade's been signaled several times. So when three o'clock comes around and Meade and his supporters were later right. We had no idea Sickles was out of position. I'm like, come on, guys, I'm not buying that. I think that's I think that's some CYA after the fact. And that's really my only position. And I don't want to harp on this, but I get what I get what you and others have said to the effect of, well, the commanding general can't go around and personally make sure every corps commander is obeying orders. But I think in Sickles' position, there's been, an, in his case, there's been enough warning signs, you know, to kind of say, hey, let's make sure we get down there and get it right. And that was really all I'm implying or saying when I blame, when I do, you know, blame Meade for any of it. Um, Having my, my law career, 46, 47 years, represented an awful lot of people who are as guilty as hell. And I know how tough it is to defend them now. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> Well, now you do it, but you just gotta suck it up sometimes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, but let's talk about but let's talk about history as interpretation. You know, because as I said before, you know, first of all, I've always said if Sickles is hell bent on being the cowboy, who's just gonna do go off and do whatever the hell he wants. Why does he willingly come to headquarters at 11 a.m. and say, "Hey guys, I could use some help. I could use some assistance." Yeah, he does. He does. He does, you know, and again, I've, and I say that because I've seen interpreters on the battlefield here who basically say, oh, Sickles told me to go to hell. I don't think so. Now, where I think Sickles is given too much wiggle room, uh, you know, again, Meade says, I, you interpret this as saying Meade pointed to that hill and said, put your troops on that summit. 
I take Meade's description of it and say Meade says, quote, if practicable to occupy it, which, as we know, that phrase is at the heart of every civil war controversy. Um, but beyond that, unfortunately, I think for Sickles and Meade, as Sickles is leaving headquarters, he says to the effect of, you know, do I have any liberty with this? And Meade says, within the general confines of what I've told you, how you execute it is up to you. And again, I'm not placing any blame on Meade for that. But I think, unfortunately, as a New York lawyer and politician, and frankly, just because he's Dan Sickles, I do think in his mind that probably gives Sickles what he feels is some justifiable wiggle room to, to execute it as he sees fit. And look, we know what the final results are. We know how history is judged Sickles. Uh, I just think it's a more nuanced story than more historians have portrayed it as. And that's really I where I can go. I mean, that. I appreciate that. That's probably as grand a defense of Sickles as I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I feel like that was a great defense of Sickles. Uh, I feel like this is inherit the wind or something. I'm up before the jury or something like that. <laughs> 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 it yeah. is tough to defend a guy who's guilty as hell now. <laughs> it just is. <laughs> but hey, uh, hey, it'll be the first time Sickles got off while being guilty as hell. So, that's uh, right. right. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I too, I think it's it's a personality issue as well. And I think that's one of the things that's it's always hard to quantify that as a historian because we like facts. We like this yeah. says this and that. Yeah. Sickles is not a trained military man. Yeah. No, no, and that's the, there's a key there. That's a big key. That's a huge, huge thing here. Yeah. And I think so the way that maybe a Slocum or a Hancock or maybe a Reynolds might have interpreted orders given to them by the commanding general, Sickles may not necessarily do that. And and I think one of the things that we've talked about before is that while Sickles has this kind of reputation of just being kind of he does what he wants when he wants, he's also a guy that requires a lot of handholding. Mm-hmm. And Hooker did that for him in a lot of situations. And so when he's not getting that, he's not only in kind of a foreign environment professionally, he's also in a foreign environment interpersonally with how things are going. It's a different situation than it was just three days ago for him. And I think that matters. So it's not absolving sickles, but I think that has to be considered. And I think sometimes in a leadership role, you're only as good as the weakest part of your organization. And I think for me, if you have these concerns about Sickles and you were this worried about him, I might have maybe spent a little more time just making sure he's he's singing from the same hymnal we are. Uh, I, I mean, I appreciate that very mm-hmm. much. I guess it, that's uh, that's as good a defense as one could ever pose for 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 Sickles. Well, can I get that notarized? Nevertheless, nevertheless. Nevertheless, in, in terms of the army, my position would always be that's just simply not good enough. Uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, he, he was given plenty of, of explicit orders, orally as well as in, in paper. And um, uh, even to the point where he comes to headquarters, and I have to hand it to him doing that. I agree with you, James. I, 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 you know, here he is. He shows up. But there's Meade pointing directly to where he wants him to be. And then when you fast forward and Meade's convening a conference of his generals. Yeah. And he gets word that Sickles is on the move. You know, 
approaching the Emmitsburg Road. And I mean, well, you can just imagine. Uh, you speak of a crisis. Uh, how many of these crises? <laughs> we could uh, really, it, the, I guess the subtitle of the book should be, uh, you know, the, the 15 crises facing me from June 28 to, 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 to July 14. Um, because it's one after another, and this could be the biggest of all of them. Yeah, well, why don't we talk about that? And before we go on, again, just to reiterate for the listeners, on page 218, Kent Masterson Brown did refer to Sickles at Gettysburg as a fine book. Okay to let the matter rest there. Um, By the way, folks, I meant it. It's a good book. (laughs) Okay, but you know, you bring up a great segue. So whether we agree or disagree on how Sickles interpreted or could have, should have, would have, uh, with the orders. Now we have the crisis of the moment. It's the afternoon of July 2nd. Shells are starting to fly. Meade finds out his left flank is not where he thinks it's going to be. How does George Meade, the new commander, react to all of this? With anger. I mean, really, some people claim they never saw him as angry. Has to use a borrowed horse, uh, rides out toward where Sickles is moving his troops and runs into, uh, Sickles comes up to him, and there's that great exchange where Meade tells him, pointing back towards Cemetery Ridge, that is where I told you to be. Sickles tries to apologize for this, I'm sorry, I didn't do, uh, shall I move back? And and Meade says, it's probably too late. You know, I mean, the artillery is already being fired. And um, ultimately he says, well, you know, Maybe that's the only thing you can do, but it also Meade also at that moment recognizes, you know, obviously little round tops bear of troops. And so this is what prompts he to send Warren and his uh, staff officers over toward little round top to try to sec- make sure it's secure. Um, and this begins uh, George Meade transferring from the operational commander of the Army of the Potomac to the tactical commander of the army for all practical purposes on July 2nd. Frankly, when he leaves the conference knowing that Sickles has made that move, he turns to George Sykes and tells him to move your fifth corps up here now. Right. Right there, even before he sees what this looks like, Mm -hmm. he tells tells Sykes to move the fifth corps. So Meade then goes over toward where the, the, uh, the, the fifth corps should come off the Tannytown Road and the Blacksmith Shop Road and onto the Wheatfield Road, we know it's the Wheatfield Road. And there is where Meade situates himself for this almost this entire uh, story uh, on the afternoon of July 2nd. Here's the operational commander of the Army uh, literally sending into the Wheatfield area alone four different divisions of his army from the fifth corps, from the second corps, to try to bolster that the defense of that position. And I considered a lot in, about how to address uh, Meade's uh, tactical decisions on July 2nd. I found him, his, the situation interesting from a whole lot of perspectives. One, uh, George Meade, there's no way he could send reinforcements out to the Emmitsburg Road he knew those positions were gonna collapse. There's no way those units would hold on the Emmitsburg Road, given the situation. And 
if you send reinforcements, they're going to collapse with the rest of them. The other thing is you can't use any field artillery. If you, if you take the artillery reserve along Cemetery Ridge, they can't fire in that direction. They're going to hit their own men. So there's almost no options left here other than to do one thing. And that is to find a position where he can strike that could at least slow the attack, that might be able to break the attack up in the, the, the area of the wheat field. How many times of the day do you guys go out to the wheat field? <laughs> it it depends area. how big the bus is. <laughs> that area of the wheat field just had to have just he looked at it and he says we're going to do it there i can manage that because the he can throw as much as he can in that wheat field and he can continue to reinforce it because they're still close enough to the lines along cemetery ridge that can be uh, where other troops can be brought forward so what he does, he sends everything he can into that one spot of Bernie's lines, General Bernie's lines, in an effort to just break the attack up. You see this in uh, sport, too. I mean, you see it in football, where the, you know, the object is to just go in and smash some element of those, of those blockers, knock them out so you can get to the guy who's running with the ball. Not different here in that if, if you can br make a breakthrough there, then we'll, we'll deal with the flanks next. We'll just deal with it. And that's all the choice the man has in this. And so four divisions go in there. And Meade is literally right behind where he's sending them the whole time. Uh, he occasionally will move up to the northern face of Little Round Top. He'll then go back, situate himself along the Wheatfield Road. And from there, he sees every one of those divisions of the 5th Corps, plus the 1st uh, the, uh, Division of the 2nd Corps, all go into that Wheatfield. I mean, I always say it's certainly a contrast if you want to compare it to how Robert E. Lee is managing his army this afternoon. I mean, Meade is right in the thick of it and, you know, as hands-on as you would expect the army commander to get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and, and, and I think I say in the book, never has the Army of the Potomac seen an operational commander do this, ever. Actually be the one down there tactically bringing each unit into the fight. It's, it's, it's stunning in many ways when you consider their history of the 26 months before Gettysburg. And it does the trick. I mean, it ultimately does the trick as the, the fighting, the, the Confederate attacks literally wear out in the mm -hmm. week. They just, ammunition and exhaustion. They finally wear out and, and he can see where that has stabilized. And as the attacks move up the Emmitsburg Road toward uh, Cemetery Ridge. Meade moves up himself with his entourage. And um, all the way until the evening when he's literally at the angle on Cemetery Ridge, uh, watching the, uh, the, the last attacks along those lines from right behind where those Second Corps troops are positioned. And, I, there's it just there literally was there's never there never was a commander of the Army of the Potomac who had done anything close to that. And you can see now how 
the, as, a, as an operational man, how different Meade is from all of his predecessors. You mentioned the flanks. How about the stripping of troops off of Culp's Hill? And uh, it's a great, great, of course, great question. But you speak of a, you speak of a, of a gambler. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you speak of a gambler. I, I, as I put in the book, uh, to tell the audience, in order to get some of his troops over toward the left flank, he's stripping them out of Henry Sloak, not only taking the Fifth Corps away from the Baltimore Pike, but he's now stripping elements out of out of uh, uh, Slocum's 12th Corps, all but one brigade. Slocum pled with him to at least leave me with a division. He goes, no, you can keep one brigade. And everything else goes to the left. The problem Meade was facing was if he can't win on the left, and it's dicey, if he can't win on the left, then he can't win. That's just it. He's going to look at one crisis at a time as they arise. And this is the big one. He's going to address it. And so we'll do whatever we t- ever it takes. But here you have the Baltimore Pike now totally, almost totally exposed. Right. Thank God for darkness. Darkness helped. And Pop Green helped. And his, his defense of Culp's Hill that night. Uh, totally heroic uh, defense of Culp's Hill. Some of this, there's, a, there's, a, there's always a little luck in it. Meade, uh, I think, would probably agree that he was lucky that night that it was Green who was left behind because <laughs> he put up one hell of a defense. And, but he was aided by others from Cemetery Hill and some from the western face of Culp's Hill, the First Corps troops. But um, uh, nevertheless, he had stripped everything else out of the, uh, of the right flank. Yet in the end, as darkness fell, um, I love that quote of Meade's as the First Corps and some of the 11th Corps are coming on the battlefield to plug in the last gaps in that poor defense line that's now battling Ambrose Ransom Wright's Georgia Brigade that's coming across the field. Meade hears some soldiers grumbling in the ranks and he turns around and to the to, to everybody's hearing, literally around him, he says, yeah, but it's all right now. It's all right now. Can you imagine uh, after a day like that, hearing that, even if you were a, a close staff officer of Meade's or close to Meade, I mean, it had to be the most welcome thing ever. Because mm-hmm. that, that, that day was, by all rights, should have lost. That attack at Longstreet's was so ferocious, so big. Uh, had such energy behind it that by all rights, Meade should have lost that. But he didn't, in much measure, due to his persistence, keep sending them in until we we beat them down, wear them down. To me, it, it often, when I think of Meade on July 2nd, I often think of Robert E. Lee at Antietam. Oh, yeah, really? A very comparable situation where... Operationally, we'll we'll look at the big picture later. But it's Commander basically putting his men where they need to be at the time, not really worrying the next crisis later. Well, yeah, we'll and work on that that next. You're absolutely right. I mean, that is that is Robert E. Lee at Antietam. That's a that's a great comparison. And ironically, Eric usually says Sharpsburg, but for some yeah, reason you, he said Antietam today. So I'll just point yeah. that out. <laughs> are, you, are you a Southern boy? <laughs> uh, born and bred, North Carolina. Oh, okay, that's right. You're from North Carolina. Yes. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, Antietam was the battlefield of first impression for me. The first battlefield I ever 
gazed on. I was five right. years old. And um, I had a family, still do, who live in Martinsburg, West Virginia. Mm -hmm. And um, my grandmother, uncle, and cousins all live there. We would go, we take the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad to Washington from here and then get on the B&O. We go right out that line through Fred, through Monocacy Junction to Harper's Ferry. And I remember coming into Harper's Ferry, the conductor, I was in the dining car and the conductor came to me and said, uh, young fella, have you ever heard of John Brown? And uh, I, I in retrospect, I should have said, uh, yeah, he's a cousin of mine. But no, <laughs> but no, he says, you ever heard of John Brown? And I go, uh, no. And he tries to tell me how he raided the, the Harper's Ferry raid and so forth. And he says, and you know, it was one of the causes of the Civil War. And I kind of went, you know, oh, really? Well, we got off the train in Martinsburg, which is just the next stop. And uh, my aunt met me and uh, we put our duds away in the house and she turned to me and says, would you like to go to Antietam? Mm. I said, what's that? She said, it's a battlefield from the Civil War. Well, this is twice I've heard this today. And we went to Antietam and I'll tell you, as I've told her many times, um, it became a terminal disease. I mean, I just, uh, it's, it's it, I got stung and so, Year after year, we go back to Martinsburg. We visit there all the time because of my grandmother. Off to Antietam. <laughs> I love the place. I love the place. But, but no, it's right. It's exactly what Lee did there. Uh, he just he became a tactical commander, and he put one unit in after another and left the decision-making regarding other areas of the battlefield to whenever we address this one with Meade, he almost seems to be acting at times, I don't mean this in, in a bad way, he's acting more like a corps commander on yeah. July 2nd than he is really an army commander at times. Yeah. But yeah. what has he been up to that point? Yeah, he's five days ago. He's a corps commander. Yeah, just five yeah. days ago. He was a corps commander. You know, that's, I think there's a tendency for all of us to kind of revert to what we know. Yeah. And I think in that situation, as everything is breaking apart and it's chaotic, Meade can fall back on what he knows and yeah. Whatever people think of Meade as an army commander, very rarely do people criticize him as a corps commander. Yeah. He's a yeah. very good corps commander. And I think so he kind of is playing to his strengths a little bit, partly I think maybe subconsciously, but also he has no other choice. No, he has no other choice. No other choice. And again, he has to address one crisis at a time. Mm -hmm. And yep. uh, the big one was on the left. And I, I was interested, I found that uh, an article written by John Gibbon in the American Historical Review. Um, I was published in the 1880s, I think. I can't remember. It's in the book. But he's the one who raises the, the question about the use of field artillery. And he says, there's no way we could use our field artillery. And we either, because we'll hit our own men out there on the Emmitsburg Road. So we can't, they're all silent. So what do you do? Well, Meade came up with, the, with that alternative. And that's the reason for the bloody wheat field. Okay. Yeah. I'll tell you, it's definitely a unique interpretation on the second day that you've got. And so obviously, I think the, um, the book is going to open a lot of eyes and a lot of dialogue to that, to that notion. Before we get off the second day, though, I want to make sure we cover the evening. And I'm going to make air quotes here, the Council of War. I don't know, now in our, in our touchy-feely 
pro-Mead environment? Are we allowed to still call it a council of war or is it a consultation? Is it a consultation? No, I'm no, okay, Exactly, being, exactly. Is it a consultation? By the way, by the way, people said, you know, he didn't read Jomini. The word consultation for those is a Jomini term. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the, when I referred to it in the book, I said, Mead regarded him as consultations and in right. parentheses is a, a term out of on war, uh, the art of war by Jomini. They were close readers of those theorists yeah. uh, and had been for years. Now, you mentioned but, John Gibbon, who was a friend of Mead's. Contemporaries yeah. like Gibbon did still call it a council of war. And, I, you know, I say that I, from a semantics I'm point of view. Funny. I don't know if I care, but, you know. I don't. I mean, no, I'm being funny. Yeah. <laughs> but let's talk about that because it's it's another seminal moment in sort of, you know, the 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 indoctrination of Meade to command of the Army of the Potomac. Sure. Uh, now sure. there is there is a message that Meade basically um sends that depending on what source you read is either eight o'clock or at eleven o'clock. And I know you have a definitive take on this, uh, where at least by around eight o'clock, Meade seems to be saying, I've decided to stay. And then he goes ahead and calls together this consultation with his corps commanders. You want to just talk about that? Yeah, Uh, yeah, I'll be talking about the letter first. Um, The the date I use on that letter is eight o'clock. And the reason for that is that's what the official records say. And uh, I'm a, the, the lawyer in me tells me you use the document. The, the best evidence is the document written at the time. Whatever that document says represents the best evidence. And uh, that says eight o'clock. And I, you can't escape that. Uh, the reason the letter is not sent down the Baltimore Pike is the Baltimore Pike shut down. I mean, they're fighting on the Baltimore Pike. Mm-hmm. That thing is not going to get through anywhere. Uh, Meade holds that letter until around 11 o'clock when he sends it down to hand to the couriers on the Baltimore Pike when that has quieted and the letter is then sent down. So in, 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 in some respects, evidence we have from, um, I think as young George says it, it was sent at 11. Right, exactly. Uh, is correct. Uh, because the Council of War then ends, but it was written at eight. Meade calls a Council of War, uh, can't send the letter, but calls a Council of War. And among the things there they address, and by the way, there are many things they address, not just staying in Gettysburg or not, but all of them uh, agree that uh, you should, st- they should, the army should stay. It's interesting. Jomini says Councils of War are useful, particularly when all the commanders agree with the operational commander. They're all in unison. And it's interesting, before this council, Meade already wrote a letter to Halleck saying he's going to stay. I have to know that is Meade's intent, period. Uh, Before the Council of War on July 4, Meade wrote two letters, one to Darius Couch and one to General Smith, telling him he's going to pursue Lee on Lee's flank Mm -hmm. to Emmitsburg to Middletown. That's before the Council of War. So in both instances, Meade will make his decision about it, but then not tell any of those commanders. He will let them make decisions then we, they go from there. And in each instance, 
all the commanders were in agreement with what Meade had already written. And in the case of the, the Council of War on July 2nd, uh, they all agreed to stay. There were other things discussed. You can imagine the disorder in the Army of the Potomac when that Council of War was called. And by the way, for all the criticism poor Meade has gotten for calling councils of war, um, councils of war in the modern army are, you know, that's the way it's done. I mean, you know, you, you want every core commander to know what every other core commander is doing, where his troops are, what their condition is, right. all that stuff. And every bit of that stuff has to be communicated to the operational commander too, because he's the one who's got to make sure these guys get what they need. They're positioned where they need to be. Uh, and I mean, it's like, it's like a football team not having a huddle ever. You go to a huddle so you know exactly what everybody's supposed to do the next time the ball snapped. And in, in the modern army, it's a team game. And Meade now is a team player. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind, he is a team player par excellence. And um, his idea is to get that team together, get uh, all the information out. They can get on all kinds of things, including food and forage. Uh, General Williams makes an incredible comment, really, in a letter to his, one of the, to his daughters about the conference conversation uh, uh, going on to the f what's, what's left of the, f of, the, of the army with respect to its food and its forage. And he says, we haven't eaten. None of us have eaten. I mean, in days. And he says, the, and, and all the railheads are out. We can't get anything in here. And then he, then he says, um, uh, in terms of the horses, this army will wind up having no transportation unless something is done to feed the animals. So there's, you can see that being laid out on the, on the deck. But the, the ultimate upshot of all this is that uh, the army, the, all the corps commanders agreed with what Meade had written at eight o'clock. And that was, we're going to stay. Yeah. And I think I'm glad you mentioned the condition of the army, because going back to that eight o'clock message, there's a passage that I think people often omit. You know, he says, I shall remain in my present position tomorrow. And people often stop there, mm -hmm. but it actually goes on comma. But I'm not prepared to say until better advised of the condition of the army, whether my operations will be of an offensive or defensive character. And I think you hit on it. The meeting is still important to determine the condition of the army. And what better way to do that than to call everybody together? Right. And, and also to, to determine for everybody's sake where all the elements mm -hmm. of all those core are. They've been shuffled everywhere that day. Right. Imagine the, the fifth core. Uh, imagine Sykes, uh, what he has to report. I would have loved to have heard him. Um, uh, Sedgwick, whose core gets split up as the as once he gets there, it's late in the afternoon. But nevertheless, he's got a moving, you know, down the Tannytown Road too to the Round Tops, and but they're scattered everywhere, and um, it's to try to bring some understanding of where this army is before we take the next step. And of course, uh, what's really interesting is that Meade begins to, uh, as a result of that conference and after that conference, begins to bolster the center of the army. 
uh, with whatever he can call up to bolster the center of the army. This is the second corps, anticipating an attack against the center um, uh, the next day, which of course happens. Yeah, which of course is a great segue into July 3rd. Before we go to July 3rd, I did want to mention, I think it's page 279. I thought you had a great passage about how Meade has outrun his supplies. And this is going to come back then after July 3rd and the retreat and that sort of thing. The aspect of this that we often don't think about that the losing army, the Army of Northern Virginia, is actually in a lot of ways at this point better supplied than the than the victor is. Yeah, I, I try. There's a there's a a paragraph, I forgot the chapter now, maybe it's in the, um, the over July 4, but I try to draw a comparison between the state of those two armies uh, on, on July 4. Uh, and um, I mentioned what, what I uncovered writing the retreat from Gettysburg, and that is Lee's army came on the field far more deliberately than Meade's. And when Lee's army came on the battlefield, there was a, uh, a system to it, to where when troops were drawn up in line where they would launch attacks, two to three miles behind those lines, they would set up hospitals. And you can go to them all today. I mean, uh, most of them are still standing. And then around those hospitals would be all the quartermaster stores, wagons, and all the subsistence wagons, and all the all the the, the livestock on on the hoof, cattle, sheep, whatever else they're going to eat. Lee's army has its hospitals set up with 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 uh, ambulance depots, by the way, so that stretcher bearers can take the wounded to depots, and then the the ambulances would just run between the depot and the hospital. So it's, a, it's an incredibly a systematic system. And um, here we are on July 3rd. Meade's army hasn't been fed. Its animals haven't been fed. You don't feed a horse for three days, you're going to lose the horse. You don't feed a mule for three days, you're going to lose the mule. And that means, you know, those horses under the army regs require 14 pounds of oats and 14 pounds of hay a day. Now, he's got 60,000 horses and mules. Me does. Imagine the job of feeding 60,000 horses a meal. It's almost impossible. But in this circumstance, they have none, nothing. On the other side, Lee's army, uh, they brought all their subsistence stores right to those hospitals, right behind the lines. They have all their quartermaster stores right behind the lines. So that uh, the army, even though it's fed meagerly, they're still fed, and the horses and mules are fed. So here you are, the, the contrast is stunning, really, mm -hmm. the irony of this. Here's Lee's invading army that has been defeated, and it is in better shape, even though it's had lots of losses now, I mean, lots of losses, and losses in officers that they can ill afford to lose, but so they've, had, they've, they've suffered a lot. But nevertheless, in terms of that army's mobility, it is far more capable of movement than Meade's. You find that a lot of people find that almost impossible to believe. Yeah. But yet, that's the fact. That's the fact. But back to July third, um, uh, Meade has 
you know, plan for an attack against the center. We all know that great quote with John Gibbon after the Council of War is over. Meade uh, tells him that he believes the attack is going to be at uh, the center of the line, and that's you're commanding the second division of the second corps, which is the very the very place that is probably going to hit. Uh, some people have discounted that quote. Uh, I don't. I don't disbelieve John Gibbon. I think it's he's telling you exactly what he recalls. It, it also sounds like George Meade. I mean, of course, that's what happens. And um, I love that uh, scene of Meade riding down Cemetery Ridge on July 3rd and going up the western slope of, of Little Round Top to where the 146th New York monument is. He can see all the guns being lined up out in the fields in front of Cemetery Ridge. Mm-hmm. And um, he knows right there what's going to happen. This is going to be a bomb. They're going to try to bombard these, our lines as heavily as they can, and then attack it. You can just tell it. Yeah, and you know, the Confederate cannonade is often, I think, inaccurately portrayed as being ineffective. Um, We've talked on this show before and among friends about the heavy casualties that are in fact suffered in and around the high watermark area. But one of the unintended consequences of the cannonade is the overshots are going to start landing in at Army headquarters. (laughs) Going to put... George Meade out of contact for a while as he and the staff kind of figure out what to do next. You want to just tell us a little bit about that story? Shelling gets so intense that um, he basically has to leave the Leicester house. Uh, Leicester house is being hit and um, shells come within, you know, feet of, of George Meade. Uh, They move to a barn across the uh, Tannytown road and that's worse. I mean, uh, uh, Dan Butterfield is wounded by shrapnel inside that barn. So ah, they, poor Butterfield. <laughs> is that worse? Well, he's your buddy's friend now. Come on. He is, a, he is our buddy's friend. That's right. He is. And then um, then he goes down to uh, the tw- 12th Corps uh, on the Baltimore Pike the, um, and tries to uh, occupy that. And finally, he, he winds up literally um, uh, a tented thing um, south of, um, of Slocum's headquarters orders his staff to go back as he as he's listening to the sound of all that gunfire he finally gets back to cemetery hill cemetery ridge as the attack is ending and he's literally riding in in and among uh, the mobs of prisoners of war that are being hustled to the rear confederate prisoners of war and he finally gets to the front lines and of course, the smoke is dense. There's still some gunfire. And he asked people, have they turned? <laughs> have they turned? And the, the young officer was hearing this and saying, he was mighty cross. And I can imagine, I, mean, I would be cross too. I mean, think, <laughs> think about that. I mean, being knocked out from one headquarters to the next, all the way back to nowhere, nowhereville, and then have to crawl your way back. And... Um, and finally, the attack is over. But yeah, uh, the the irony of the fact that because of that, George Meade kind of misses Pickett's charge. It's he, kind of an ironic moment. View any of it, yeah. none of it. But he got his share of the bombardment. And um, but you know, he being the operational commander, you got to keep him safe. You, you can't expose him. And and um, so they did what was right. Uh, but sadly, and to his anger, he missed the show. <laughs> yeah, but uh, um, 
it's hard. I, I, I wish I, I, I had, I had, there, there was something out there uh, that we, one could find that uh, where there were some more interviews with George Meade at the moment. What we, what's in the book is all that's there. And most of them are letters written, many, some of them after the war, recalling uh, Meade coming up to the front lines. But um, uh, you really do yearn for some words of his uh, said to somebody uh, close to him about his feelings at that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, here he has finally repulsed the enemy. Uh, it's a victory. There's no question now about it. A signal moment in Meade's life, for sure. And yet, ironically, he's cross at that moment. He's cross. He's, he's really ticked off. I mean, uh, I missed the whole show. <laughs> I don't care about their flags. Have they turned? Yeah. <laughs> I love that story, though, about uh, uh, three of his officers uh, on the east side of the Leicester house uh, hiding, uh, hiding to, to escape the shell fire. And Meade me is really kind of a... Uh, uh, a tough nut. He, 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 although he's conscious of the shells, I can't say he's not. Uh, nevertheless, he walks over to these guys and chastises them. Mm-hmm. Or why are you hiding behind the house? You know, well, you know, try to get out of the shell fire. And he says, Oh, it reminds me of that wagon driver that I remember in, uh, at Palo Alto, uh, under uh, Zachary Taylor. And, he turned his wagon over and was hiding behind it as the shells were coming in. And uh, Zachary Taylor asked him, what are you doing behind there? And he says, well, I, I'm trying to get out of the way of the shell. Don't you know that you're just as exposed there as you are anywhere else? And he goes, yeah, but it kind of feels better. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I guess I can, I can, I can, uh, I can identify with, with that. I mean, uh, uh, anything would feel better than just being out there, but not for me. To me, me it's tough. Me was tough. Well, we've gone probably over the time that you graciously agreed to commit with us today um, as we've gotten through July 3rd, and we've touched on the retreat a little bit, but I think the retreat deserves its own segment. Would you be gracious enough to come back and talk to us again where maybe we focus specifically on meet on the retreat and meet at Williamsport. Of course I would. And see folks for anybody, company. I mean, (laughs) anybody, for anybody who thinks there's any heat between us because of meat and sickles, we're all friends. (laughs) By the way, I'd like to, if do you like to speak around the country about Dan Sickles? Oh, do I like to speak about sickles? <laughs> How many hours do we have left? Yeah, yeah, I do. And I speak to roundtables and Zooms and all Would kinds you of... Would like to speak to the Kentucky Civil War roundtable in January? Uh, we could talk about that. I often don't travel during the dead of winter because of weather conditions. Do, is there maybe a more tropical time available in Kentucky <laughs> that we can talk about? That's the only date open. Oh, okay. Well, well maybe we'll talk about that offline. Yeah, yeah. Wait, let's talk about it. All right. Um, maybe as we kind of then wrap up this segment, kind of a part, any parting thoughts on your part, Mead at Gettysburg. Um, how do you want people to remember 
George Meade as commanding general of the Army of the Potomac, specifically at Gettysburg, and we'll we'll do other things at other time. Well, uh, um, as a um, as a commander who um, uh, once he took the reins of command, uh, moved uh, that army uh, decisively uh, into a position that um, uh, I, I think anyone who looks at what Meade had in mind for the Pipe Creek line, the defense line there, uh, a spectacular position to take, and how he used every effort he could to bring the enemy to him there. Uh, and, and it's important here, too, to say this, that Pipe Creek line is not, a, what a lot of people say, is an offensive-defensive thing. It was a defensive line for Meade, and that's what he wanted to happen. That's what he planned. All the operations on July 1-4 were to direct the enemy to him at Pipe Creek. That's his plan, period. How it ultimately was foiled by the disaster of the 1st and 11th Corps uh, on the first day and their withdrawal retreat to cemetery and Culp's Hills and his in turn movement of the rest of the army through the afternoon of July 1 and into the evening and frankly all the way to the next day to positions at Gettysburg from really distant towns where the 5th Corps was in Hanover, or the, the 6th Corps was in Manchester. But how they, he directed all of them to Gettysburg. He's just, if that's where we're going to fight the battle, then this Meade is the type who says, then I'll by God fight it there. And um, on the next day, after setting up all his defenses at, at Gettysburg, he was attacked on his left flank after Dan Sickles moved his third corps forward to the Emmitsburg Road and, and to the uh, line between the uh, Peach Orchard and, and um, the foot of Little Round Top, how Meade, him as a, even though he was the operational commander of the army, took over tactical control of the battlefield on the left flank and literally himself directed each one of four different divisions into the wheat field alone during that afternoon. And then once he managed to stabilize that situation, the crisis of all crises, he then continued to tactically command all the operations all the way up to the center of his lines, uh, what we call the angle. And when the fighting ends on July 2nd, Meade um, is there at the angle having directed the last divisions into that attack, into the, the defense of Cemetery Ridge. Uh, this is a commander who is a team guy, a team player. His calling of the Council of War on the night of July 2nd was absolutely fundamental to the ability of that army to continue to uh, uh, function. Uh, in that it, uh, it gave the, uh, an opportunity for all the Corps commanders to discuss with the commander of the Army the situation of their Corps. They had been scattered all over that battlefield on July 2nd, addressing crises at one end and the other. Um, and um, the, the, the Army uh, had lots to talk about in terms of its, its 
situation with respect to food and forage, which they did. These kinds of councils of war are fundamental to, uh, to the survival of an army. And uh, everyone has to be apprised of what everyone else knows, where his, where his commands are situated, and the condition of those commands. And among the things they talked about were casualties and how many men are left. How many do we have left? Mm-hmm. Well, we started with 91,000. We got 56,000 now. I mean, this is the price of July 2nd mm-hmm. so, and July 1. So, um, uh, and then, of course, that, that led... Um, uh, in the midst of that, everyone knew who was there at the center of the line to receive any attack that might come there. And, of course, it was met and defeated in the, uh, the enemy attack on July 3rd. I personally uh, can't conceive of a commander who did more personally in the defense of his positions uh, for this army than George Meade did on July 2nd. It's uh, stunning to me. Really, you don't see an operational commander do that. And obviously the story will continue beyond July 3rd. And and we definitely look forward to having you on to talk more uh, Mead Matter. Maybe you can sort of become our regular contributing Mead correspondent going forward. Whenever we need a matter of Mead, we'll we'll call on you. Sure, Jim. I I enjoy you guys. And um, (laughs) it would be great fun. I mean, whenever. You just tell me. Okay. Well, be careful what you wish for. We'll be in touch. (laughs) I didn't say I wished it. (laughs) No, No, I'd be delighted. It'd be be fun. I enjoy talking with you guys. Thanks. And definitely same here. Eric, any closing thoughts? No, I think a really great insight into Mead. I think certainly he has seen a renaissance, if you will. I've been recently calling him the Union Longstreet. Uh, as far as kind of the rehabilitation of his character and people, I think, kind of rediscovering him in some respects. So I think it is nice to see sometimes in the historic world that these long-held notions can change. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's based on good research and good analysis. That's what does it. So I think it's it's proof that nothing always stays the same in history. That's right. It's a great point. It's a great point. Thank you. Super- Superfan Jody uh, from Savage, Maryland. Any closing thoughts? Was there anything on Pipe Creek or Maryland in general that we might have missed? I know offline, Kent and I, we had a a great conversation about the importance of Pipe Creek and a certain president. Oh, yeah. You want me to let me me throw that anecdote out before? Yeah, since we've been talking about it in your in your wrap up here, we might as well just close with that. Who who else would want to close with Ike, right? Yeah, with Ike, good old Ike. Um, (laughs) I I have this friend uh, who years ago told me that um, he was a friend of Frederick Klein, who um, was from Westminster. Um, longtime Carroll County resident, wrote a lot of works on the Civil War in Carroll County and in Westminster. Fred Klein called him up one day and told him he's going to have a visitor come by. And he wondered if um, he would like to come over and join him. Now, my friend was my age. This is in the 1950s. And um, he said, no, I got to cut my parents' lawn. I, I, I can't do that today. And he says, uh, uh, well, he says, I'll tell you all about it after I get through with my, uh, with, with this friend. So um, some days passed and uh, Fred Klein called up 
this friend of mine and said, uh, well, we really missed you. You would have really enjoyed being with us. And he says, well, who was your guest? He said it was uh, Dwight Eisenhower. Now I'll tell you, can you imagine missing <laughs> out on that? Yeah. And he walked, he walked Ike along the south bank of Pipe Creek. Now, you know, we're at Union Mills. That's a really steep bluff there. That's it been, sure is. And, um, and as you get, as you walk toward Middleburg, it, it lowers, it gets lower, but that's a <laughs> steep bluff there. And um, uh, my friend asked him, he says, really, Eisenhower? He says, what did he say? What, I mean, what, you know, trying to get something out of, out of Fred that told him about the conversation. And Fred says, well, you know, in a nutshell, Ike told me, he says, you know, it's just daggone sad that, um, that Meade couldn't have defended mm. the Lee along Pipe Creek. He said, one, he would have won along Big Pipe Creek. But number two, the casualties would have been so much less. And um, he said, it's just sad that it had to be fought where it was fought. Mm. And uh, that kind of gives me goosebumps sometimes to think about. I mean, uh, uh, here's, here's Dwight Eisenhower um, saying that. But um, anyway, so I got Ike on my side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if Ike is supporting that big Pipe Creek plan, then there we go. There you go. There you, there go. you go. Yeah, and if we have Dan Sickles on our side, I'm not sure what that says about us. But and it's a reason to always visit Maryland when everybody somebody gives no. you that opportunity. <laughs> you, know, you know, my wife made an interesting comment not too long ago. We were sitting here in the kitchen and and the book had just come out and she said, you know, I wonder whether more people now are going to visit Carroll County, Maryland. <laughs> I said, I'm sure there will. I'm they sure. should. What is this big pipe Creek thing? Uh, and people are going to drive around and find it. Where, where is this piney Creek? Uh, where's Meade's headquarters? I mean, it's, there's a marker there, but yeah. um, I imagine you're going to get some. I, I hope so. I do too. Should we go ahead and designate ourselves official Pipe Creek licensed battlefield? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Carroll County Chamber of Commerce, if you're listening, oh, give us a call. Go. There you go. Welcome to Pipe Creek, where the battle wasn't fought. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, they, the, they wouldn't have been as hungry. They would have been closer to their food. <laughs> and then the, then the, the placard will become commiserate. <laughs> <laughs> Home of Pipe Creek and Super Fan Jody. What else would Carroll County need? <laughs> that's right. That's right. There you go. That's right. Well, guys, well thank you for sharing that story. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for coming on, and we will hold you open to that commitment to come yeah. back and, and finish right. the story. So thank you very right. much. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Okay, wow. So we've, over the course of part one and part two, we've covered a lot of ground, Kent Masterson, Brown, and Mead. Eric, I'll turn it over to you first. Any thoughts? I think one of the strong points of his book, especially with day two, is the coverage it gives really to Meade's movements mm -hmm. and how active George Meade is on July 2nd. Kind of contrast that to his counterpart, Robert E. Lee. Yeah. And I think what you see is Meade really from about two o'clock in the afternoon, July 2nd, to well after sunset, he's in the saddle. 
and he is making a lot of major decisions really kind of on the fly as he sees it. I think it really does a good idea of showing the chaos in the Union line and maybe more so the typical interpretation of you know, Sickles line goes forward, yeah. it breaks, that's the chaos. But I think what's going on at Cemetery Ridge, what's going on at Cemetery Hill, Culp's Hill as well, it kind of weaves into the, this this really – um, as we often say, fluid situation that George Meade's dealing with on July 2nd. Yeah, that's right. And I think one of the things Kent does well is pointing out the crisis management mm-hmm. aspect of this. Look, regardless of what we think or not think about Sickles, there is that crisis management moment. And I've always said in my own Sickles-related interpretations, whether you like it or not, his move has such a wide-ranging influence going all the way over to Meade's Mm-hmm. maneuvers at Culp's Hill, which again, I've always been a little on the, I don't want to say critical side, but I've, look, in hindsight, we know Meade overreacts mm-hmm. and strips more troops off of Culp's Hill than are needed. Folks, that's just mm-hmm. a simple fact. Kent, in his interpretation, is, you know, pretty pro-Meade mm-hmm. on that. I, I forget the quote, but it was something like he's got guts by the bucketful mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, you know, so obviously there's that influence over at Culp's Hill. But I think one of the things that's a little different in Kent's second day interpretation is really how he emphasizes the wheat field, mm-hmm. you know, where he's really kind of position the wheat field is kind of the focal point Mm -hmm. of the second day. Now, again, it's in the middle of everybody's lines. There's Mm -hmm. no doubt about that. You know, Union doesn't want to break. Confederates want to break. But I feel like in Kent's interpretation, he really kind of makes the wheat field Meade's focal point of putting the troops in. And, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, that's a different Mm -hmm. interpretation of the second day. And and when I do wheat field tours, and and yes, at some point, folks, we will get around to doing a wheat field episode. Yeah. That has been one of the more requested topics we've mm-hmm. had. But I often say that at first, the wheat field has very little value. Yeah, you have Detrobian's brigade there, but that's even getting stripped apart at various points as the fighting around Devil's Den is is intensifying. And then it begins to become important. Uh-huh. And obviously, if the Confederates hold the wheat field, they've got a good jumping off point to either attack Little Round Top, the Peach Orchard from behind, or even push towards Cemetery Ridge. So it does become an important yeah. position. But I think it's not its not like on July 2nd as Meade sees Sickles' move forward. Meade immediately says, that wheat field there is going right. to be the, the, right. where this hinges. It kind of develops as battles do and, and give Meade maybe some credit for identifying it. Um, and, and I think back to your what you said about, you know, Meade's overreaction, Culp's Hill and what's happening on Cemetery Ridge. I often think with Meade, his experience in the Army of the Potomac for the last two years, can you blame the guy? I mean, when things go wrong for the Army of the Potomac, they have a tendency to go really go wrong, wrong really quick. And I think Meade at that moment is probably having some flashbacks, kind of understanding, hey, does this army have this capacity to withstand this? Yeah, yeah. And like and, I said, uh, you know, it's you can be critical of Meade for doing that in yeah, hindsight. Absolutely. And again, I'm emphasizing folks in hindsight. Mm-hmm. At the moment of the hour, the attack is on the left. And this really speaks to some of that lack of Confederate coordination. Longstreet is fighting away on the left. Ewell hasn't really, and I like Ewell, we've said that many times on other shows, but Ewell really hasn't gotten it in motion. It seems to give me the opportunity to throw those troops. Again, in hindsight, he didn't need to do that. Could have been a Union disaster on the right, but it wasn't. And I think what we look at with Meade is sometimes in history, a general just has to get lucky. Mm. Meade's overreaction on the right is compensated by Robert E. Lee's really wow. lack of attention. Yeah. And also 
you're missing the Stonewall Brigade on Culp. So there's yeah. a lot of other things happening. Where's John Gordon going? You know, yeah. There's a lot of things happening. So he kind of lucks out by confusion with the Confederates, but he doesn't know that. Well, that, so. that comes to that old saying, right, that the enemy gets a vote. In whatever you do in your campaign studies, regardless of whether it's mm -hmm. Gettysburg or any other campaign, you can't just study the decisions of one army. Right. Because the enemy gets a vote, how the enemy reacts, and then how you react to the reaction is just as important of the outcome as strictly focusing on one guy did this and one guy did that sort of thing. And, and one thing that I like about Kent's book, I'm a big fan of sort of process mm -hmm. and I like how decisions are made I like viewing that I'm, I'm the guy that at the end of a of a season I like to read how the championship team was assembled yeah you know, who did you draft who did you trade for who did you get in free agency and I think he does a really good job of working through how Meade gets to some of these decisions how does he make some of these choices on the field and when does he do it and in some cases the reality is he has very little time to make those decisions. I think it's a, it's an interesting way of looking yeah. at things because so much we focus on the battle. We really focus on the minutia. Mm -hmm. And you really, we time, did Gettysburg. Yeah, we do. I know, shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Understatement of the show. Yeah. That I think sometimes we lose sight of the bigger picture. And, and I think well, it's very, I think we as, as interpreters in this battlefield, I think what guides really excel at is we can go into the weeds, but we can also zoom out to give that big picture, see how this relates to everything else. And I think, you know, Kent did a really good job of that, seeing what's happening at the really kind of micro level, also what's happening at that macro level, uh, which I think was a really strong point of the book. Yeah, you know, and I always say, I say it on tours, I've said it on the show, I don't like the fantasy football approach to mm -hmm. the Civil War. You know, Meade is winning the battle single-handedly. Lee is losing mm -hmm. the battle. Meade versus Lee kind of stuff. Obviously, July 2nd, you've got to give a lot of credit to subordinates. Hancock immediately mm -hmm. comes to the top of the list for plugging in a lot of those holes on the left and that sort of thing um you know i think artillery obviously is a huge role on july 2nd i think focusing on the wheat field a little bit tended to diminish the role of the artillery when in fact you know that artillery fight for the emmitsburg road corridor is not only one of the big points of july 2nd it's always been kind of one of the overlooked aspects of july 2nd you know the, the artillery, artillery reserve yeah there's yeah. another great example yeah. of you know, a fascinating story that is critical in holding Sickles' line probably a lot longer yeah. than it should have held yeah. otherwise. Yeah, and, and McGilvery's whole line. You know, and look, and look, in many cases, although we're supportive of Sickles in some ways, you know, McGilvery coming in at the end of the day and in a lot of ways defending ground that Sickles and his third corps chiefs had said they couldn't defend. And so the artillery does figure out how to get that done. And it's a big part of July 2nd. And I think one thing that Meade learned coming up through the Army of the Potomac, being with them through the various campaigns at different levels, is if you're the commander of the Army of the Potomac, keep your hands off the artillery. Leave it to Henry Hunt. Leave it to his guys. They'll take care of you. Think about what Hooker does in the Chancellorsville yeah, right, campaign. Right. The one campaign, really, between the Army of the Potomac and the Army of North Virginia, yeah. where Lee's gunners get the advantage and come out on top, yeah. is the one battle that really Henry Hunt has very little responsibility for. Yeah, it's good, and good and point. I think Meade understood, I'm not trying to meddle with this. Let Hunt and his guys do it. And I think 
sometimes that's the sign of a good general is knowing when to be involved and also when to stay the hell out of it. And and yeah, that's a good point. You know, as you know, I did that sold out Chancellorsville tour this past spring and the handling of artillery in both armies is so radically different than Gettysburg. You know, we always have that cliche to understand Gettysburg. Oh, yeah. You must understand Chancellorsville. And a lot of times it's the stuff that does happen and doesn't happen. So the reorganization of the artillery, or should I say the re-reorganization of the artillery giving it back to Hunt again. I think you're making a good point. Definitely plays into it. Um, the other thing, too, is, you know, we intentionally didn't want to focus the interview just on Meade mm -hmm. Sickles. Of course, we had the spirited Sickles exchange at the beginning of it. You know, Kent's cla now classic quote, he was guilty as hell, yeah. you know, kind, kind of thing, uh, which was great. You know, we, we wouldn't expect mm -hmm. Kent, uh, a Mead author to necessarily agree with all the interpretations on that. Um, I've always had my interpretation. How did Mead describe the orders when Mead testified under oath before the Joint Committee of the Conduct of the War, you know, occupy that range of hills if practicable and all that stuff. And Wait, you know, I thought so, only Confederates used that word. Well, exactly right, right? And, you know, we've had people on the field say, no, 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 Mead did not include those words. Maybe he did or didn't mm -hmm. when he was on the ground, but that's how he described it in his Joint Committee testimony. Under oath. Under sworn oath. You think hand on the Bible, you know, with the American flag fluttering behind him Absolutely. kind of thing? Maybe eagle. Yeah. Yeah. Gently lands on his shoulders. He does it. Yeah, I like that. I Actually, like can we get that as a commemorative painting? You think so? Yeah. I mean, I think that could rival Lee and Jackson praying in church. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Maybe some snow in the background because, you know, people love Ooh. snow in their Civil War Well, artwork. you know, we might be stretching history a little bit, but those... Those committee meetings were in the fall and winter, so mm -hmm. it, Had meteorologically it can work. And so. there we go, turning it back to the weather again. I wonder what the dew point and the wet bulb was when they were testifying. You know what? I bet we can get that answer. I bet we can find Stay tuned, folks, for the weather part six, you know, whenever we get around to doing that. Um, so where the hell were we? So Mead's testimony. You know, we won't we won't go too much into that related to sickles unless there was stuff you wanted to add but what i would like to see more of what i would like to see more of is some really objective analysis of williamsport mm -hmm. and you know look there's some great books out there on the retreat kent's book is even mm -hmm. though kent's book is a little more confederate focused mm -hmm. eric wittenberg and friends have done more union focus on the retreat and you know as is the pendulum goes pro mead these days, right? As that pendulum has swung pro Mead. You know, the one, I think the one criticism at the time that was a little bit harder for me to live down was this idea that he quote unquote let the Confederates get away yeah. at Williamsport. And folks, trust me, I'm making air, Eric can attest to this. Yes, I'm I am visually confirming air quotes. I am making air quotes as I say, let Lee get away. But it, it, the one thing I would have liked to have seen a little more of in the book was a little more analysis mm -hmm. of that aspect of the campaign. And and I think in many ways, what you have to do when you study the Battle of Gettysburg, and especially with George Meade, is there's a lot of things that we know, decisions he's making during the battle mm -hmm. and during the campaign. But then there's the analysis of that a few months after mm -hmm. during the testimonies right. and things such as that. And then there's, of course, the continuous after the war, post-war writings right. going on. And I think what you almost have to do is color coat these various pieces of information. When does this come into play? Yeah. Because as you kind of made the point, what's said in testimony may not actually be what was said on the battlefield. Right. And as we have often said, memory is a weird thing. Right. And so I think you really have to kind of 
look at it as to what did Meade know? When did he know it? When did he actually say this? Or was it something that comes to us afterwards yeah. and then gets in the historic record? This is where to really understand this battle, folks, you have to understand the historiography of this battle. Yeah. You have to understand some of these post-war controversies and how it impacts it, but also be able to sort of keep it away yeah. and not over give it maybe an overabundance of importance that over, maybe it would have had otherwise. Over bias. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I think and, and you're right. And you're sorry, right, you know, as a student of history, you know, any battle, any campaign, unless we have something in writing, you know, Benteen, come quick, be, you know, bring packs sort of thing. Unless you literally have something that was created on the ground for the most part, we have very little contemporary. Mm -hmm. This is what was said on the battlefield. So as a historian, you, you try to bias towards the earlier accounts the official reports mm -hmm. written that fall. Meade's official report kind of, you know, characterized Sickles' move as a mistake and mm -hmm. kind of left it at that. And then obviously, as you said, the years go on, the Meade-Sickles controversy heats up, in many cases long after Meade is dead, and this stuff gets blown out. But back to the retreat, if you look at the Joint Committee's report, the way I've always – and folks, I hope you've all read the mm -hmm. Joint Committee's actual findings because, again, what you always see is, oh, Sickles destroyed Meade's mm -hmm. reputation. Not really. I don't think mm -hmm. – I think that's always been overblown. But what the Joint Committee's report is probably the most – critical on is the Williamsport mm -hmm. aspect. And again, more air quotes, you know, letting Lee's army get away, failing to destroy them, and all of that stuff. I'd like to see a really good objective book on that. Mm -hmm. Not a, not a, you know, we don't like George Meade, so we're going to criticize him, or I love George Meade, so I'm going to kind of brush over any criticism. I'd love to see a good middle-of-the-road book on Williamsport. And folks, even the greatest coaches of all time right. make decisions that aren't the best in the course of a game. Right. But over the course of a season, over the course of the career, they make more better decisions than they do bad ones. Yeah, hence, right. they won't be a successful coach. And I think that's sort of where I look at Meade here. I think at Gettysburg, he made very few really bad right. decisions. Like he kind of pulled the levers and pushed the right buttons yeah. at the right time. I think by the time he gets to Williamsport, I think we have to factor in some physiological factors. I mean, he has been going nonstop for almost two weeks now. His army is in relatively rough shape. I think mm -hmm. we often think of the Confederates in this agonizing retreat back, and they're the ones that are battered. Well, Meade's army's hurting. Yeah. Leadership-wise, Meade's army's hurting. He ha he does not have a Reynolds. He doesn't have a Hancock. Uh, there's a Dare lot of we folks, say there's no sickles. There's no sickles. I mean, you know, there's a lot of... Uh, issue. I mean, yes, William French. That, there, there is a uh, there, blanky. I mean, that if that does not inspire confidence, I don't know what does. So, I think there's a lot of factors he's dealing with. And folks, if you've never gone down to the Confederate line along mm -hmm. Williamsport and you study the Battle of Gettysburg, please do so. If, yeah. if you come here for a weekend. It's worth the drive out to Williamsport and Falling Waters in that area to get a look at the terrain. Because I don't think books do it justice. No. Photographs don't do it justice. And when you look at it, you go, I don't know if I would order that. Attack. Well, you know, that's that's a great example, right? And, and not to turn this into a Williamsport episode, but we've kind of opened mm -hmm. the door here. So, you know, Meade, Meade has a plan. Kind of the equivalent of probing and a reconnaissance in force. I don't have my notes and papers in front of me, the exact description of it. But, you know, kind of a reconnaissance in force. Mm -hmm. He gets together with his 
uh, senior leadership, his remaining leadership on the night of the 12th. He is essentially talked out of it. I mean, he is, folks. He's essentially talked out of it. You know, he says something after the fact of, I couldn't order it in good conscience, knowing that my subordinates were not on board. We can argue whether that's the right call or the wrong call. But then Meade and Humphreys spent the 13th doing a reconnaissance. I mean, these are trained engineers, the best engine, you know, among, among mm-hmm. the best engineers in the army. Uh, everybody likes Meade. Everybody likes Humphreys today, at least. They spent the 13th reconnoitering. They kind of, after spending the whole day viewing the works, order the same damn thing to proceed on the 14th. So there wasn't really anything I think they saw on the 13th that dissuaded them from making this move. And then kind of like you said before, though, obviously the Confederates leave. They get a chance to go into the earthworks and go, oh, my God, this would have been a disaster. Mm-hmm. But you got to kind of weed some of that out from after the fact. Mm-hmm. And that's why I said I'd like to see a good objective book on it because there's all these accounts after the fact when the criticism of this is in the public domain and all of these union generals say, good God, you know, this would have been Gettysburg in reverse. And I'd, I'd like to see somebody really take a middle of the road dive into this. Maybe we should do it. I, I would love to do that. It's a topic that is one of my favorite, yeah. some of my favorite tours I do are retreat tours. Yeah, yeah. I think that it's a great, um, there's a lot of interesting decisions that you can discuss yeah, right, on that. Right, and, right. And they tend to make for really fun tours. And, you know, it's funny, no matter what I read, whatever era, you, as a Gettysburg historian, I kind of view everything ultimately one way or the other through the prism of Gettysburg. Yeah. And I'm currently reading um, a, a book on the Battle of Midway. And uh-huh. after the United States Navy is successful at Midway, one of the criticisms that we didn't pursue. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, maybe you should have. Yeah. There's also factors that you don't know. And I yeah. think too often students of this battle ignore the overarching political factors that are at play mm-hmm. with the armies. They just think these generals operate in a vacuum and right. can do what they want. No, Washington has a very major say in what goes on in that army, especially the Army of the Potomac. And what you're going to see is one of Meade's objectives. Folks, once Lee retreats from Gettysburg, the order to protect Washington, D.C. does not go away. And Meade also understands, is it worth risking mm. a major defeat along the banks of the Potomac, potentially? Is it worth that? And I know Gettysburg's a great victory, but could it have been offset by a disaster much closer to Washington? So we these are things you have to look at. And I think this is where it goes into being objective, kind of taking all of those factors into play and, and really analyzing what happens. Yeah, a couple thoughts there. One, you mentioned the political influence. Red alert, red alert. Mm-hmm. We're getting close to Professor Gelzo territory. So, you know, I'm just kind of lightheartedly making that comment. But you're right. I mean, they always talk about... Yeah, the, but we do military history well. Stop. The Army of the Potomac. The Army of the Potomac was the Army of Washington. They were the Army of the newspapers. And there's all this other mm-hmm. stuff we got to factor in. That's comment one. Comment two. You're right. You talk about other campaigns. I just got done speaking at the annual Little Bighorn Associates Conference Folks, I'm on the board of directors. I'm going to throw in a plug. If you're interested, please join the Little Bighorn Associates. Thank you very much. Uh, but you talk about pursuits leading to disaster. Battle of Little Bighorn, mm-hmm. Custer's Last Stand. Great, great example of that. And last but not least, all the points we're making now 
I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of this in the book. And trust me, I, I know from experience, you can't turn books into 600, 700 page books. Well, I guess you can, but uh, in this case, it wasn't to be. See, I would have liked to have seen more of this in the book is my only comment and kind of how we went down this road in the first place. And this is ultimately why I enjoy podcasting over books. Yeah. Because you don't have a page limit with a podcast. We can we have the ability to delve into these areas more than if you have that page count and, and those things that are happening. And, uh, and I think that's where sometimes books are great, but they can also be very limiting. And also, once the book is out, you can't really <laughs> rehash some of these yeah. without a without a new edition. And publishers don't like to make yeah. a lot of changes to new editions. Yeah. Like, yeah. And so, so I think what it does, you know, for us, we we do understand the limitations, both being authors and having dealt with that. But I think we also there are some things that maybe any good work will lead to further discussion. And hopefully what Kent's book will do, and I think what it is doing, is maybe challenging some of the preconceived notions about Mead, mm. reinforcing some of the better scholarship that is coming to More fruition prevalent. in the last couple of years. Yeah. And also, I think, opens up some avenues for further research for other historians and other scholars to start looking at some of these aspects. It gives us a starting point. And, and I think that's really good, as I said in the first episode, uh, or part one. This is going to be a book that is going to be a, a oh, major this, heavyweight yeah. in Gettysburg historiography for, well, the foreseeable future. Yeah, this will and be, well beyond that. This will be the gold standard on me at Gettysburg, and I know other things are in the works, and we hope obviously that'll take some fresh approaches and take things. A little bit in, in other directions. But yeah, there's no doubt Mead at Gettysburg will be the gold standard on Mead at Gettysburg for a long time, as it should. You know, the Gettysburg campaign, though, is a bigger thing than just July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. So I'll, I'll kind of put the call out to uh, any future prospective Mead authors who are listening right now. Take me beyond July 1st through 3rd. And we said in part one, and I've been saying on my tours, and I've been saying this for years, I tend to think we overemphasize the Pipe Creek stuff. Mm -hmm. As much as I love it, I give Pipe Creek tours. I do, you know, I'm doing some other presentations related to that. That's a little overemphasized, folks. Give me a little bit more on Mead after Gettysburg. I know there's books on it, but there isn't really one that's sort of wetted my whistle yet, so to speak. Give me the definitive Mead after Gettysburg book. And, folks, I will buy that book. Yeah, I think, once again, this is another example. There's always more to delve into with the Gettysburg campaign. Mm -hmm. This is, and I know people will sometimes groan. Um, I'm sure the Antietam folks are rolling their eyes. Oh, another Gettysburg book. <laughs> and I'm sure the folks at Vicksburg are just going, oh, that's not even the most important campaign right, going right, on. Right, right. Hey, right. folks, we're sorry we're the biggest draw in town. We can't help that. But I think what you look at is it shows that there is things to look at. And these are major topics that need to be delved into. This isn't someone just doing another book on Little Round Top or another book on Culp's Hill. I think there's some areas that could, I think, really, they're sort of black holes mm -hmm. in Gettysburg scholarship. And I, what I would hope is yeah. that scholars, students, historians of the battle start trying to really seek out these kind of black holes. And that's yeah. where you need to start focusing your, your attention. And sometimes it's not the more exciting aspects of the campaign, uh, but I think it is much needed to our understanding of the campaign. Well, 
Yeah, and on that note, you know, we did extract a promise from Kent to come back. Maybe we have him back in the future and kind of focus on the uh, on the post post battle stuff. I'm talking to him as we speak about appearing at his roundtable next year and even on his podcast. So hopefully there will be more to come with Kent Masterson Brown. He's a great guy. Mm-hmm. He's a heavyweight in the field. The book is receiving all the accolades and award it deserves. Eric, at this point, should we put a bow? on me to Gettysburg, at least for now. Yeah, I think so. I think certainly this will be a topic that we come back to in one form or another. Uh, so so we are looking forward to that. Uh, so before we go, folks, really quick, uh, if you're looking where to find us on social media or how to donate to the show, all of that information is in the show notes. Also, if you can do us a favor, and we've really noticed really since the anniversary, uh-huh. we've gotten a lot of new listeners um, we at one point were a top 100 podcast in the United Sweet. States for history uh, during this period. So we're very pleased with that. Welcome all to our new listeners. Uh, one of the things we're seeing are the reviews. Please, folks, if you've not written a review for us, please do so on the podcast platform of your choice. And also another great way to uh, support the show as well as show uh, your pride in your favorite podcast. Uh, Jim, tell them where they can find the show store. Yeah, so our store is at the Battle of Gettysburg Podcast.com. That's all one word. The Battle of Gettysburg Podcast.com. You know, we have shirts, we have hats, we have mugs, tees, things related to various episodes. We have a brand new wet bulb t shirt in honor of the, uh, uh, the weather episode. So yeah, check out the store. Obviously, Eric and our, my books are there, some books from some friends and that sort of thing. So it's a great way to support the show. The Battle of Gettysburg Podcast.com. One more thing I wanted to add from new listeners. I had a few messages from folks saying, I'm a new listener. How do I become a super fan of this show? Yes. I've yes. had some of those as well. We, yes. we haven't done the super fan thing in a while. Super fan Estella, I hereby dub you a super fan. Anybody who's a new listener, you are hereby dubbed a super fan. And yeah. thank you for joining. We, we really, there is... Being a super fan is open to anyone. There is no real <laughs> process you have to go through. There's no uh, anything. I mean, we could develop one. Should maybe. we have a comprehensive super fan exam like the Battlefield Guide exam? Do we want to you do know, that? Ooh, that could be. We could have some fun with it. Yeah. You know yeah. what? Uh, we'll I'm going to jot a note to that. Er, Eric's making uh, a yes, note of that I on will... his big yellow notepad. Yes, the, uh, the notepad of knowledge. <laughs> so with that... Uh, we're coming back. We're right in the yeah. middle of season four right now. Um, as far as next episode, we're not really sure what our topic will be, but there will be an episode. Um, there's a couple <laughs> things we're floating around. We've got to juggle our schedules because right now, both Jim and I are up to our ears in work right now. So, on so many different things. So it's, it's a little tough sometimes to kind of coordinate that, but we will have, we have some really good topics mm-hmm. that will be coming up. Um, so certainly we will let you know when that's coming out. As always, light it do listener questions things such as that yeah. as well for us so stop so we'll, stop screwing around end the episode already so with that uh <laughs> once again uh this has been the battle of gettysburg podcast uh i'm eric lindblade he's jim hessler thanks again everybody take care folks battle of gettysburg podcast coming back soon <laughs>